Our gospel reading this morning is from Mark chapter 7, verses 9 through 23. And this is where uh, Jesus has already been talking about those who uh, think they're clean because they're clean on the outside. And um, he says, no, that's, that's not it. Anyway, before we read, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day. We thank you for your word which you have given to us. And Lord, we ask that you would help us this morning to hear your word, read and proclaimed, that you would help us to be those who have hearts that are ready to receive your word into our lives. God, that we would more and more be uh, changed by your word and your spirit into the people that you have made us to be in relationship with you through Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark chapter 7, verses 9 through 23. This is Jesus speaking. It says, And he continued, You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother. And anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is Corban, that is, devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus, you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many things like that. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull? He asked. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach and then out of the body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on. What comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. Turning then to our New Testament reading from Galatians chapter 4, verses 8 through 20. Paul continues his letter to the church in Galatia, saying, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You're observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. I plead with you, brothers and sisters, become like me, for I became like you. You did me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. And even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. Where then is your blessing of me now? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? These, those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us, so that you may have zeal for them. It is fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good. 
and to be so always, not just when I am with you. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone, because I am perplexed about you. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, This morning, for sermon text, we're looking at Genesis chapter 47, verses 13 through 27. Uh, We are continuing in our series through Genesis, and we are nearing the end. Um, And but where we are this morning is a kind of a strange passage. It's a little complicated here, um, and I'll let you know why I see it that way in just a bit. But where we are is uh, when the people of Jacob's family, Jacob and his, uh, all his 12 sons and their wives and families, they have all moved from uh, the land where God had initially taken them and during this time of famine had moved them all to Egypt where Joseph was the second in command. He had been overseeing this uh, situation with a famine. This is actually the same situation that got Joseph out of prison in Egypt. Do you remember this? So Joseph was one of Jacob's sons who the other sons betray. They send him as a slave to Egypt. And as a slave in Egypt, he is wrongly accused, wrongly imprisoned, and from prison then uh, is called on to interpret some dreams for Pharaoh. And Pharaoh's had these dreams of how there's... uh, going to be these cows and there's other cows and there's this grain and there's this other grain and what in the world this is just a weird dream and joseph says well god can give you the interpretation here's what it is there's going to be seven years of lots of food and there's going to be seven years of not enough food so seven years of plenty seven years of famine and so he said what you need to do save up during the good years so you have something during the bad years well that makes sense And so Pharaoh says, all right, brings him out of prison and uh, puts him second in command of all of Egypt and puts him as the one who's going to oversee this uh, whole project to collect the food during the time of plenty and to distribute the food during the time of famine. That is what has been going on, and that is where we kind of pick up the stories. Now, all of... uh, his brothers and his dad, they've all moved to Egypt. They've been actually put in the best part of the land because they're shepherds. And we talked about that last week, how the Egyptians found the shepherds detestable. <laughs> and uh, so they're in the best part of the land. Uh, and seemingly not as touched by the famine there as the others are within the land. We'll see that in a bit. But let's uh, pick up the story then in Genesis 47, starting in verse 13. Says there was no food, however, in the whole region because the famine was severe. Both Egypt and Canaan wasted away because of the famine. Joseph collected all the money that was to be found in Egypt and Canaan in payment for the grain they were buying, and he brought it to Pharaoh's palace. When the money of the people of Egypt and Canaan was gone, all Egypt came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? Our money is all gone. Then bring your livestock, said Joseph. I will sell you food in exchange for your livestock since your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph and he gave them food in exchange for their horses, their sheep and goats, their cattle and donkeys. And he 
brought them through that year with food in exchange for, their, for all their livestock. When that year was over, they came to him the following year and said, We cannot hide from our Lord the fact that since our money is gone and our livestock belongs to you, there is nothing left for our Lord except our bodies and our land. Why should we perish before your eyes, we and our land as well? Buy us and our land in exchange for food, and we with our land will be in bondage to Pharaoh. Give us seed so that we may live and not die, and that the land may not become desolate. So Joseph bought all the land in Egypt for Pharaoh. The Egyptians, one and all, sold their fields because the famine was too severe for them. The land became Pharaoh's. And Joseph reduced the people to servitude from one end of Egypt to the other. However, he did not buy the land of the priests because they received a regular allotment from Pharaoh and had food enough from the allotment Pharaoh gave them. That is why they did not sell their land. Joseph said to the people, Now that I have bought you and your land today for Pharaoh, here is seed so you can plant the ground. But when the crop comes in, give a fifth of it to Pharaoh. The other four-fifths you may keep as seed for the fields, and as food for yourselves and your households and your children. You have saved our lives, they said. May we find favor in the eyes of our Lord. We will be in bondage to Pharaoh. So Joseph established it as a law concerning land in Egypt, still in force today, that a fifth of the produce belongs to Pharaoh. It was only the land of the priests that did not become Pharaoh's. Now the Israelites settled in Egypt in the region of Goshen. They acquired property there, and were fruitful and increased greatly in number. That's where we're going to stop. We will pick up the story there next week. But um, but hopefully you kind of catch what's going on here as the people, kind of one and all throughout Egypt, uh, are slowly losing their independence as they slowly become property of the state. Did you notice that? That over time, first the <laughs> all right. <laughs> that is <laughs> that slowly over time. You see, first they have to buy the food, then they have to buy, or then they sell their livestock for food, then they sell their property and even themselves until they become basically slaves of Pharaoh in uh, in that land, and. And they do this voluntarily, and they're glad to do it. And it's like, hey, what other options do we have? It's this or death. So, yeah, we're glad for you to save us in this way. And, uh, and that's where the, the dilemma comes in. What do you think of what Joseph's doing here? Is what he's doing a good thing? Not a good thing. On the one hand, saving their lives. Okay, that's probably a good thing. On the other hand, reducing the people to servitude, making them slaves instead of citizens. What do you think? This is where I have a hard time with this one. (laughs) Because uh, he is depicted as saving their lives, and it does seem like that is a good thing. On the other hand, think about this. Where did, uh, where did the food come from that he is 
selling to the people. We didn't read this part uh, today, but if you recall from earlier on, the way that the collection thing worked, it basically he just collected it from the people. He didn't buy it from the people. He just collected it from them. Everybody has to give this amount. And so they did. And now when they want it back, they have to buy it back with their money, their livestock, their property, and themselves. This is an odd uh, situation. And uh, it gets to the point where, like I say, everybody becomes slaves. Well, not everybody. You notice who doesn't, who doesn't become slaves? There are two groups of people that don't become slaves. The priests, they don't. And who else? It's the Israelites. It's Jacob and his family that have moved to Goshen. And it says at the end, uh, in verse 27, now the Israelites settled in Egypt in the region of Goshen. They acquired property there and were fruitful and increased greatly in number. Well, that's weird, isn't it? That at the very same time that everybody's being reduced to servitude, we've got this group that's thriving and doing well in the same area. What is going on there? And I think part of what's, uh, what we're supposed to see here is, um, is that Israel, who's supposed to be the ones that bring the blessing to the nations, right? That's, that's one of the things we've seen since Abraham, that through this people that God is going to bless all the nations of the world. And that, uh, and that the way that that works is as they make the one true God known, which is kind of a priestly role. And I think what we're supposed to see here is the people of Israel in the same kind of category as the priests. You notice that? Why else is he pointing out that it's the priests that don't lose their land? And then right on the heels of that. Oh, and also the Israelites. They don't lose their land. I think we're supposed to see uh, the Israelites as uh, in this role of priest, but actually as the the true priest, the one who could actually point to the one uh, true God. Um, Now we will see how that goes later on. But in this moment, we also see what Joseph is doing. And... uh, you, you can already tell the way I've talked about it so far, kind of where I'm coming from on this. I don't know how we're supposed to see this for real. I'll tell you how I see it. You see it differently, let me know. <laughs> but the way that I see it is this, is that Joseph is, uh, is doing right in uh, saving the people's lives the way that he is. Um, well, saving lives which is what he is doing. The way that he's doing it, though, that's where I'm not sure that is the right thing that he's doing. And that is, to me, very much where he seems to be uh, acting in a way that is um, maybe overstepping his bounds as a uh, in the role that he's been given in saving the people's lives. And yet... This seems like where he's trying to serve two masters kind of thing. On the one hand, he's serving God. On the other hand, he's serving Pharaoh. And it seems like right here, he does a really good job of serving Pharaoh. 
And he gets everybody in bondage to Pharaoh. And everybody becomes uh, this servant or slave to Pharaoh. And I think it's easy to look at this if you were an Israelite and go, that's fine. That's fine. It's not us. It's somebody else. So fine. Until you turn a couple pages over and you get to the book of Exodus, where you see that another Pharaoh came by who didn't, wasn't familiar with Joseph and did the same kind of thing, but in reverse. And so then you have the people of Israel who become the slaves. And it's like, oh, well, now we don't like it at all. And this is where um, I think that Joseph and every ruler falls into this same sort of trap where there is a way of, um, of ruling that serves the kingdom they live in but doesn't serve the kingdom of God. This is uh, a very, very easy trap to fall into. And, um, and it's one that we are trained day in and day out by our media to fall into ourselves. And here's how easy it is to fall into that. As I've been reading this so far, you probably have already had made some connections in your mind to modern-day politics of, uh, that we've lived through. And I assume, I could be wrong, that you've been mostly seeing how it's the people on the other side of whatever side you're on who are doing wrong. But that it's my side that is always doing right. And if that's the way you see it, then we may have idolized our politics and placed things like party over the kingdom of God. It's really easy to do, especially in a society that trains us to view the entire world this way. You either have this color glasses on or you have this color glasses on and you view everything through those lenses. It's not a new problem. It's the same kind of thing we saw uh, back in, in the time of Jesus where people come to him. This is two groups of people that should not have anything in common politically. The only thing that they have in common is not wanting... Uh, to follow Jesus. So this is Matthew 22, where you have the Pharisees and the Herodians. Those who think they should be completely independent from Rome and those who kind of think that we should be, yeah, we should be kind of okay um, with that sort of thing. Very different politics. They come together. The Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? I know most of you already know the end of this story. 
and so it loses its shock value. But there would be shock value in his response because they have laid a trap just like everybody lays today where we try to get people to show us which camp you're in. In fact, whatever answer you give, we'll try to spin it in a way that shows that you're either for us or against us. You're our side or the other side. But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius, and he asked them, Whose image is this, and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, So give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And when they heard this, they were amazed, so they left him and went away. There was politics of Jesus' day that everybody had their glasses on. They were seeing uh, through those political lenses, and Jesus did not fit into any of their categories. There might be a little bit of overlap here, a little overlap there, and so people are like, oh, maybe he's on our, oh, man, no, he's the other side. And he consistently rejects those categories. That he is not a Pharisee, he is not a Herodian, he's not a Sadducee, he's not an Essene, he's not any of those things. He is the Messiah who has come proclaiming not the politics of the day, but the kingdom of God. And when he gives this answer, show me the coin, and then he says, whose image is this and whose inscription? This is what is stamped on the coin. The image of Caesar is stamped on the coin. Caesar is written on the coin. He says, okay, if it's got his picture stamped on it, it's got his name written on it, looks like it belongs to him, doesn't it? So there you go. On the other hand, let's give to God what's God's. And so then you have to go, okay, well, wait, wait. What is it that has God's image stamped on it? Oh, wait, that's people, isn't it? That's us. Who is it that has God's name written on them? It's the people of God, right? And so he's saying, look, If Caesar wants his money back, give him his money back. But don't you dare give him your soul. I think this is where, in Genesis 47, I have that hard time seeing what Joseph's doing. Because it seems like he has, on the one hand, saved people in a good way. On the other hand, it is as though he has crossed that line where the people themselves have become nothing more than property. The people themselves are the same as the land, the same as the livestock, the same as the money, as though people can be bought and sold. And so I think he, he has crossed a line there. Now, um, I think we are in the same danger when we do our politics of the day like everybody else does the politics of the day. Where we are, um, when we can find ourselves um, breaking fellowship with other Christians because we don't share the same political viewpoints, that means we have put politics 
over the kingdom of God. We have put our politics over the people of God. We have mistaken ourselves for representatives of talking heads on TV instead of as ambassadors for the kingdom of God and representatives of Jesus Christ. If you feel like I am talking straight at you right now, it's because I am. And me, and everybody around you, (laughs) and everybody who's not here today, because this is a problem we have. And we need to figure out much better as a church what it means to be able to give to Caesar what is Caesar's, to be good citizens, to even be a part of a party without without giving what is God's. How is it that we can give our vote without giving our souls? One of the other ways that that Joseph does point us, and this is the other part that I struggle with, is Joseph does still point us, even in what he's doing here, uh, to what God has done for us. But this is where I say I think he oversteps. And he starts acting more like he is in the place of God. Because what has Jesus done for us? But he has bought us. But he has, he has purchased us by his blood. And we are uh, those who are called his servants and his slaves. And I think that's exactly why it's not okay for Joseph to do it. It's not okay for people to be slaves to Pharaoh. Why? Because we are to be slaves to God. It's not okay for Pharaoh to own the people. Why? Because God owns the people. (laughs) That we are his by right. And, uh, And for others to be buying and selling the people of God is not okay. But then again, if we are those, who have been uh, brought from death to life, have been bought by the blood of Jesus. We ought to live like that, right? (laughs) It would be pretty strange for people to be, um, to have that understanding of God as the one who has made me and who has redeemed me and then say, but I'm going to go serve somebody else. the definition of idolatry. And it is far more common than we like to think. One more connection uh, for us, and this is at the end of, towards the end of what we're reading, where Joseph uh, established it as a law concerning the land in Egypt that was still in force at the time this was written, that a fifth of the produce belongs to Pharaoh. 20% 
20% flat tax. It all just goes to Pharaoh. There you go. From then on. Not as a slavery uh, bit, but as a recognition of, uh, of Pharaoh as the ruler and as the one who is going to be providing for them. And here's what's crazy. Is you get echoes of this, even in uh, what God teaches his people later as they are going into the promised land. And he talks about a tithe, which is not 20%, it's 10%. It's like half of that. And, but it's still with that same recognition. But the idea is that instead of uh, them giving 20% to Pharaoh, they're giving 10% to God as a way of saying, we recognize that you are our creator, that you are our redeemer, that you are the king above kings, the Lord above lords, that you are our king. And with that in mind, that is why we give. We give out of uh, a thankful response for the one who, the only one who should be um, our king, actually being our king. This is a lot to process, and I know we're doing it on a, on a special day, so sorry about that. But it's here for a reason. <laughs> if there are, um, as I said earlier, this is kind of my take on this. If you have a different take on it, please let me know, and uh, we can continue that conversation. But in as much as... Uh, we can allow the word of God to speak to us. It is my prayer that we would do so today and in the days going forth. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that you have made. Lord, we do uh, thank you for the, uh, the country that we live in. We thank you for the freedoms that are afforded we thank you for the rights that uh, dignify people as people. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to be good citizens, but Lord, we also pray that you would help us to distinguish between what it means um, to be a citizen of this country and more importantly, to be a citizen of of the kingdom of heaven. Lord, we pray that you would help us not to become indistinguishable from the kingdoms of this world, but help us to be those who are ambassadors of your kingdom, who are representing Jesus well in everything that we do. God, we pray that you would help us to fight against the temptation to sell our souls to th- and give ourselves to things that can never satisfy, can never fulfill, can never give life like you do. Lord, we pray that you would guide us in what it means to live counterculturally, in reconciliation with people who 
see things differently. To forgive those who maybe don't deserve it. Lord, help us to love. Help us to love others the way that you have loved us. Help us to love so well that we would be recognized as those who follow you. Our true King and Lord, we pray this all in the name of Jesus who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. We forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. Thine is the kingdom, the power, and glory forever. Amen.